my hope is, is that you, as you hear this testimony this morning from Nebuchadnezzar, that you would be encouraged about how God works in his life and how God grabs a hold of his attention. My prayer is, is that you would be challenged as you hear his testimony, that you would know that God desires to have a relationship with you and that he will go to whatever lengths is necessary to do that. And my prayer is, is that you would be challenged as well to share your testimony. And so if you would this morning, hopefully by now you've found Daniel chapter 4, if you would stand with me as we honor the reading of God's word this morning. We are going to read the first few verses of the chapter and then we're going to jump to the end. We're going to focus this morning in our reading on the testimony that he gives of God's greatness and then we'll go back and look at the middle during, the, during our time together. Starting in verse 1, it says, King Nebuchadnezzar to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is, ever, is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion endures from generation to generation. And then moving to verse 34. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my Lord sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven for all his works are right and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning. And Father, we do praise you. Lord, you are the God of all creation. You are the sovereign God who controls all things. You are the one who has the heart of kings in your hands and turns them this way and that. And Lord, we praise you. Lord, we thank you for your grace and your mercies that you bestow upon us. Things that we so often take for granted. Lord, we thank you that you desire to communicate with us. And we pray this morning, Lord, as we hear from your word and we hear from this testimony of one who was touched by you. <clears throat> Father, Lord, that we would hear. Father, that we ourselves, Lord, would have a divine encounter this morning. Lord, that it would change us. Lord, that it would bring life. Lord, we pray all of this in the beautiful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. If we were to look at Nebuchadnezzar's story, we might say it was... We might title it, The Lord Reigns. Certainly, as you look at 
the words of praise that the king offers to God. They are words of his sovereignty. They are words of his strength. The word of his, of his wisdom. But ultimately they have to do with the fact that he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. That he is above all things. But to understand a little bit about why Nebuchadnezzar sings these praises, why he writes these words, it's probably good for us to understand who he is. Nebuchadnezzar, of course, is the king of Babylon. It was interesting as we introduced our fifth and sixth graders to this story this week that they immediately begin to recognize, hey, we know that name, we know about Babylon, we know the, about where they were at and what's going on because we read about it in our history books. And it was neat to see the realization on their faces that this word that we have is not just some collection of made-up stories, but that it is the truth, that it is history, that it is both what was, what is, and what will be. It was cool to see that connection in their eyes and on their faces. So he was the king of Babylon. It was one of the first great empires of the world. He had conquered so many of his neighbors and expanded the kingdom and he had built this great city of Babylon with its hanging gardens and with its impressive gates and walls. He had gathered the nations into it, sometimes by force. Gathered the nations into it that it was a blending pot of cultures and religions and wisdom. It was a magnificent thing. We see in him that, and, and in the history that he was a brilliant general, that he was a, a clever political tactician, that he was an uh, observer of cultures, that he was wise in, in many aspects of his rule. But he had one downfall. He was prideful. He was prideful. I love what one commentator says on pride. It's the sin that all of us see in others and loathe, but we never see it in the mirror. He was prideful. He thought himself even a god. If you go back to chapter 3 in Daniel, you're going to see the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and for all my might, VeggieTales was running through my brain trying to screw up those names. But we see these three gentlemen, and Nebuchadnezzar is doing what? He has built an idol, he's built this statue, and he has told all of the people in the capital to bow down and to worship it as a god. He has elevated himself to that position. He has attempted to rob God of his glory. And of course, those three gentlemen refuse. They say, absolutely not. And he throws them, long story short, he throws them in a furnace that burns so hot that those that throw them in are consumed themselves. But to his astonishment, when he looks in, there are not three, but there are four. And he says that one shines like the Son of God. And those three come out, and they not only are not burned, but they don't even smell of smoke and Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar proclaims their God is good. Their God is a God of salvation. And he issues an edict that no one is to speak ill of the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He believes in their God. But he does not follow their God. He believes 
that the God of the Israelites is real. He believes that he is able to save the Israelites, but he refuses to follow him himself. He still wants to be king. He still wants to be God. Even though he's had this miraculous experience. And so a warning comes in chapter 4. We see in verse 4 it says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid. This dream, this vision is so real and so tangible that it strikes fear into his heart. And so he begins to ask uh, his counselors, his wise men, what does it mean? Is it, what is it going to do? What's going to happen? Because it, it was so jarring to him that he could not get it off of his mind. Until eventually he remembers that he has someone in his council that does interpret dreams, that has done this before, a man named Daniel. And so he tells him the dream, and the dream goes like this. It says in verse 10, The visions in my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong, and it, its top reached to the heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful, and its fruit abundant, and in it, and in it was food for all. The beast of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches, and all its flesh was fled, all flesh was fed from it. I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said, Chop down the tree and lop off its branches, strip it of its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beast flee from under it and the birds from its branches, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beast in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's and let a beast mind be given to him and let seven periods of time pass over him. This is the dream that he has. And he, go, and he tells Daniel, what does it mean? I know it's, he knows it's not good. What does it mean? Daniel actually begins by kind of hem-hawing around. Daniel doesn't really want to tell him necessarily the interpretation of the dream until the king tells him, no, you need to speak the truth. And so Daniel tells him, this dream is about you. You are the tree. You are the tree that has prospered. You are the tree that is full of wealth and life. You are the tree that has tried to reach to the heavens. But you have become prideful. And so God is going to lay you low. He's going to take the kingdom away from you. And you're going to go mad. And Daniel begs him. In verse 27 he says, Therefore, O king, let my counsel be accepted to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. Daniel looks at the king and he gives him the interpretation of this dream and he begs him, repent. Stop going this direction. Stop seeing yourself as God. Stop thinking that you are all that and a bag of chips and start going that direction. Start following him. Start doing what is right. 
may God have mercy upon you. It is the same, in many ways, the same gospel that we preach now, the gospel of repentance. It is the warning, stop going that way. There is danger that direction. Instead, turn and follow after Him that you may know life. Unfortunately, the king ignores this warning. It's interesting, though, it's 12 months. It says in verse 28, all this came upon the king Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, you, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beast of the field. Twelve months go by. I can imagine that the first few days and weeks, the king was on good behavior. Like most of us, when we hear a warning, when we know that something is is serious, then for a while at least we pay attention to that. And for a while we may change. It's like the individual who knows that they've been diagnosed with diabetes or they've been told that they need to reduce their sodium or whatever the case may be and they're told of the health consequences and what may happen if they don't listen to the doctor's advice and for a while, for a while they follow that, right? For a while we're good. For a while we cut out the sugar, we cut out the salt, we do what we're supposed to do. And then a cookie comes across our desk. One cookie won't hurt. Next time, it's a cookie and ice cream. Next time after that, it's the whole cake. Pretty soon, it's sugar every day, and we have forgotten the warning. We've forgotten that the doctor has told us that there are consequences to this, and we have completely gone back to where we have been. In the same way, the King Nebuchadnezzar, he, I'm sure at the beginning, he thought about that dream, and it was on his mind, and he was on his best behavior. But as time goes on, there's no consequences. And so he begins to drift back to that pride. He begins to drift back to that thinking of himself as more than he is. It's all of us. Especially if we have not put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, if we have not allowed Him to change our hearts, then it is impossible for us to follow Him well. He must do the change. So these 12 months go by and the king declares his pride, his majesty again. He declares to everyone, look at what I've done. And in a moment, his life changes. His humanity is stripped from him. And he is given the mind of a beast. He goes into the fields. He eats with the cows. He sleeps with the cows. His hair grows long. His fingernails, uh, this is the one that really got the, the, 
fifth and sixth graders. His fingernails, he describes himself them as being like talons of an eagle. You can imagine the grotesque length and the curvature and the dirt. And as the fifth and sixth graders said, they would turn yellow. He was unrecognizable in many ways as a man. His mind had been transformed in a, in a horrible way. Before we ponder that too long, I, I want us to see, though, God's grace in these things. God's grace in all of these. You see, grace, if you grew up in a, in a church like I did and, and from Sunday school, you may remember grace as being God's riches at Christ's expense. Webster's Dictionary defines grace as God's free and unmerited favor manifested clearly in the salvation through Jesus Christ. That's Webster's Dictionary. I think that's fantastic. God's free and unmerited favor. God owes us nothing. He owed Nebuchadnezzar nothing. This man had already tried to steal the glory of God he had already tried to put himself on the same place as God. God had already shown him a miracle in the furnace. He had already seen more than most of us would ever be get to experience. And he had turned his back on God. He had remained prideful. He had remained uh, self-centered. God did not owe him anything. And yet God gives him a warning. He gives him a dream. There's grace in the warning. It's unmerited favor that God warns him, you are going the wrong direction. It's God's favor that he tells the king and he sends the king someone to interpret the dream, to tell him to repent. It's this huge flashing neon sign, stop. You don't want to go any farther. You don't want to go down this path. There's God's grace in the warning. There's God's grace in the delay. He waits, God waits 12 months. God, God gives him this dream. He gives him the interpretation of this dream. He gives him this warning. And he waits. He waits for the king to change his mind. He waits for the king to change course. He's patient with him. It's like a parent that knows that their child is doing the wrong thing. And you, you see so many parents, and, and I, at times we fall into it as well. We don't want to punish our child. We don't want to have consequences. We don't want to discipline. We would much rather have fun and enjoy their presence. But sometimes we don't have a choice, but we are patient. We, we wait. We we do the countdown. We do whatever it takes. We remind them. We ask them again and again and again. For heaven's sake, just pick up the toy. Just do what I'm asking you to do. I know what's best for you. And God does the same thing with the king. He says, here's the warning. Stop going this direction. And he is patient with him to give him time. And he is patient with us. 
Brother and sister, He is patient with us. <laughs> you and I, though we, have, we may know Christ as our Savior, we are far from perfect. And God gives us warnings. He gives us things and instructions and, and areas of obedience in our life to, that we are to follow, that we may know life and know it abundantly. And yet you and I are like that little kid that we try to go off on our own way still, and God is patient with us. Friend, if you are here and you have never known Him, He is patient with you. He is waiting for you to understand that you are going the wrong direction. But His patience will not last forever. And there is grace even in the judgment. There is grace in God's intervention in Nebuchadnezzar's life. We look at it and it's like, can you imagine? Like we, Sometimes I think we read this story and we gloss over it. Like we don't really think about it. We just read it and we're like, oh, that's a, that's a weird story. Like he, he gets his mind changed. He turns into, a, he thinks he's a cow. Like that's just odd. But think about this for a moment. Imagine that your humanity is stripped from you. Imagine the humiliation. Imagine not knowing, not being able to reason, not being able to think. Imagine when he, he wakes from his stupor, so to speak, and his reason is restored. Imagine what he must think when he, he sees what he has become. God intervenes in his life, but there's grace in it. Because God, in his desire for you to know him and to know life abundantly, God will do what it takes. He'll do what it takes. And I would say even more so, before we think about this in terms of those that don't know Christ, I would say it's even more true in the life of the believer. Scripture tells us that God disciplines those who are his children. I would say even more in the life of a believer, if you are walking in a direction that you should not be, if you are doing things or not doing things that you know that the word has commanded you to do or to not do, so much more God will go to any lengths to get you back on track. Now I want to be careful here. I'm not saying that every hardship you experience in life is discipline. I don't know that. Sometimes it has a different purpose in our lives. Sometimes it's just because we live in a broken world. At the same time, I think too often we discount it as it couldn't possibly be discipline. We get in difficult parts of our life, we get in difficult stages, and we cry out to God to save us, and we never think, you know, maybe I got myself here. Maybe there's something that God is trying to teach me. Maybe he's trying to warn me. Maybe he's trying to get my attention. But God will go to any length, any length to stop you. He puts warning signs in your way. He's patient with you. And when that doesn't work, he begins to act in our lives. And the sad truth is that so many people will walk right by every single sign. They will walk by every single sign. 
And someday they will stand before the judgment seat of God and they will look back on their life and they will realize, oh, he was trying to get my attention. I was told, I was warned, and I just ignored it. I just didn't care. And at that point, it's too late for grace. At that point, it's time for accountability. And we will realize that if we have not put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, that we ourselves are accountable for our actions, and that is not where you want to be. There's God's grace. There's grace in God's judgment. There's grace in God's intervention. And there's grace in God's restoration. Remember, grace is the free and unmerited favor of God. God did not own, owe the king a warning. He did not owe the king the delay, the patience that he showed him. He did not owe him this intervention in his life. And he most certainly did not owe him restoration. He most certainly did not owe him to bring him back to his senses. He did not owe it to Nebuchadnezzar to restore him to his kingdom. He did not owe it to him to bring him back to where he was before. But that's exactly what God does. You look at the end of the chapter, what we read before. It says in verse 36, At the same time my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. God did not owe him restoration, but he gives it to him freely. He puts him back as king. He gives him his lords and his counselors back. Can you imagine the miracle that that is? Can you imagine serving a king or serving a president more in our terms and the person goes absolutely to mad to the point where he goes out in the pasture and he begins to eat grass and he begins to let his appearance go and he won't come inside and then one day he snaps out of it and he walks in back into the palace and says, okay, let's get back to it. <laughs> Those folks are going to look at him and go, uh, no, <laughs> we're going to need some time here. But it says that the lords and his counselors, that they came to him, that they put him back on the throne, that they were ready for him to resume the reign. That in itself is a miracle. Let's not gloss over that fact. God restores life to the king. And I believe he restores to him not just his humanity, he restores to him his soul. Now this is highly debated among among. Uh, those that have read this passage and are much smarter than me. But I agree with one in particular who says, if a man walked into my church and he proclaimed the name of Jesus Christ and he gave him all glory and honor and he proclaimed his sovereignty and his power and his grace and he told me that he, God had made him go crazy and then had restored his sanity and now he was ready to come and understand God, I would be baptizing that man. I think when you read the story of Nebuchadnezzar, you see a man that just doesn't understand God. I think by the time you get to the end of chapter 4, you meet a man that knows God. 
It's interesting, in the history books, we see a lot in the first 10 years of Nebuchadnezzar's reign. There's a lot of things written. There's a lot of things written about his conquests. There are a lot, and there are a lot of things about his kingdom, and most of them have a religious tint to them. Most of them talk about the gods of Babylon or foreign gods. But something happens about the 10-year mark, and it goes silent. We get scraps here and there, but the writing largely comes to an end. And what writing we do have is more just edicts and and commands. But it seems like there is a shift in Nebuchadnezzar. There's something that changes in the kingdom. Now, historians will tell you we don't know what that is. We don't have record of it. We don't have anything to go on. We don't know. But there's only one thing that changes a man. There's only one thing that changes a soul, and it is God himself. I believe that he was changed, not just that his humanity was restored, but that his soul was given life because God had grace. On a king that was a Gentile, on a king that had destroyed Israel, on a king that had committed atrocities unspeakable, on a king who had attempted to steal the glory of God for himself, on a king who had seen a miracle in a furnace and walked away, God had mercy. God gave him a warning. God gave him patience. God intervened in his life in an incredible way, and God restored to him question today is, do you see yourself in Nebuchadnezzar? What is your kingdom? What's your kingdom? We all have one. We don't think about it in terms of kingdoms. We don't think about it in terms of a palace or a throne. But you have a kingdom. You have your area of influence. You have your area of control that you lord over. For some of us, it's bigger. For some of us, it's quite small. And who is your king? You see, what we find in life is that there are two directions that this can go. Two ways to live, so to speak. One is for us to be the king or queen of our own life. That we take control. That we make the decisions. That we think we know what's best. That we do not consult, that we desire to be accountable only to ourselves. And we become prideful. Again, pride is that thing that we see in everybody else and loathe, but we never see it in the mirror. And we're trying to do everything. The problem with that is that we are really good at screwing up. We will always make the wrong decisions. We will always, we will always go down the wrong paths. And the Lord tells us that there is consequences to that. If we desire to be king and queen of our lives, then eventually he will say, fine. And we will not know him. That one day, while we experience, we all experience blessings in the here and now, God says in his word that the rain falls on the good And the evil both. 
that God blesses our lives, even if we don't acknowledge him, even if we don't love him, even if we have walked away from him, that he still chooses to bless us, that he still chooses grace. But someday, God will say, you don't want me? That's okay. You can have that. He will separate himself from us, and it is a place of torment. It is a place called hell. Or, you can choose him to be your king. You can choose to follow him. You can trust him with your life. And he promises you to give you life and to give it to you abundantly forever. Who is your king? And will you heed the warning? If you sit here this morning, it is not by accident. If you sit here this morning, the Lord has placed you here and now with the people around you that you may hear this word of God's warning. Who is your king? Who will you follow? Will you continue to go your own direction that ends in destruction or will you choose life? As you hear these questions, and as you're answering them, King Nebuchadnezzar and the scriptures invite you to come and see. Come and see a God who reigns, who is all-powerful, who is in control of all things. Come and see a God who judges rightly and perfectly. He may delay, he may be patient, but he judges rightly. And come and see a God who restores. God's desire is not, God's desire is not that we would know destruction. His desire is that we would know life. Will you come and see that? Will you come and know him? This God that the king declares his ways are right, his works are right, and his ways are just. This morning, too, as we've said so many times during, through this sermon series, when we see the king and we see what happens in his life, notice that the natural outcome of someone who God has intervened in their life is to testify. That's the natural inclination of the believer is to testify to what God has done in their life. And so we ask you this morning, if you are His, if God has intervened in your life in grace, are you testifying? What is your story? Do you know it well? Do you repeat it to yourself? Have you thought about it? Have you praised the Lord for it? Who are you telling it to? Now, Nebuchadnezzar doesn't just simply go, wow, that was an incredible experience, and move on. He writes chapter 4. God allows this king of Babylon to write a chapter of Scripture so that his name may be praised to all people and all nations. So I ask you, who are you telling Maybe it's a 90-second testimony. Maybe it's a three-minute testimony. Maybe it's longer. But who are you telling it to? And are you praying for them? Are you praying for them? The Lord has blessed us in His grace to use us as conduits of His kingdom, as ambassadors of this message, 
that we get to be part of the warning, that we get to be part of God's word, just as Daniel interpreted the dream. So we interpret the gospel into our context for people. God desires to use us in that way. But ultimately, remember that it's him who changes hearts. So who are you praying for? Who are you sharing with and who are you praying? God, intervene in their life. Do whatever it takes that they may know you. I'm going to ask the praise team to come back up and we're going to have a time of response this morning. Maybe you're sitting here this morning and you have never known him. You are the king or queen of your life. You are in control but you also realize that you are not. (laughs) Maybe this morning you hear this warning of God saying, stop going that way. That way leads to destruction. That way leads to no good thing. Follow me. This morning you would desire to do that. Then I would encourage you, just pray to him. Just as Nebuchadnezzar does, it's just talking to God. We, we repent, we ask him to forgive us of our sins, and we choose to walk a different direction. We make that choice to follow him. Say, God, I no longer want to be king. I want you to be king. This morning, if you're a believer here, maybe you have taken the reins back. You're like that parent that's driving with their 15-year-old and is constantly reaching for the steering wheel. Sorry, Pace, I didn't mean to look at you in that moment reaching for that steering wheel, you're doing the same thing to God. You're reaching for the steering wheel and yanking it and trying to drive on your own. And God's saying, stop. I know where I'm going. I know what I'm doing. This morning, would you let go? Would you trust him before he has to discipline? Will you heed that warning? Let me pray. Father, I pray this morning, Lord, that we would hear your word that we would hear this testimony of this great king who was prideful, who was self-absorbed. Lord, that we would hear the warning that's issued. Lord, that when we pursue our own things, Lord, that it leads to nothing good, that we would desire to know you and to follow you and to experience life, Lord, as you intended. Father, I pray. Lord, if there is one here or this morning that you're working on their heart saying, follow me, follow me, Lord, that they would answer that call. Lord, that they would seek you. Lord, and that they would let someone know. Lord, give us the courage to share what you have done in our lives. Father, we pray this in the beautiful name of Jesus Christ. Amen.